When talking about something hard to find, we often use the expression, it's like finding a needle in a haystack. That's sort of a throwback to a more agrarian era in our society, but I think most of us can still get the image of a really difficult search, even if we haven't spent much time around actual haystacks. Take the movie National Treasure, starring Nicolas Cage. His character is on a constant hunt through the movie to find an ancient treasure that most think is just a myth. He follows unlikely clues and slowly but surely pieces together small details to find a forgotten treasure, and the myth becomes a truth. He found the needle in a haystack. So on today's podcast, I'm going to talk about a different search for a needle in a haystack. We have a specific job title for someone who searches for something difficult to find but very valuable once it's found. We call such a person a prospector. Now, in our history, you tend to think as prospectors of those who hunted for gold or silver in the mid-1800s. But last month, I was hiking in one of my favorite parts of the Colorado Rockies and got to a point with a beautiful view of Mount Antero, a 14,249-foot-high mountain named after a chief of the Ute tribe of Native Americans who facilitated a peaceful interaction with the settlers who moved into Ute territory. In 1894, a prospector named Nelson Waynemaker found gemstones on Mount Antero, such as aquamarine and topaz. I looked on my hike, but unfortunately, I didn't find any gemstones. I guess I'm not a good prospector. Well, there is a kind of prospecting that goes on for the benefit of farming, which you probably don't know about, but which really matters. It's the search for new ways to control pests. The big driver behind this effort is the need for new tools to help farmers deal with various pests like insects, fungus, disease, and weeds, things that can damage or compromise their crops. But there are other societal needs that tend to benefit from this same discovery process. Often, a new chemical or biological crop protection agent can also be used to control mosquitoes that spread human diseases. Some of those agents can also help protect animals on the farm or pets in our homes. The new tools can help those of us who garden or otherwise uh, can be useful in our landscapes. The new tools are often useful for the control of household pests. Pests bug everyone, but it's agriculture that drives the search for newer, better options for all of us. So you can see that there are many categories of pest control that need to be addressed. So why do we need to keep looking for new options? Well, there are three basic reasons. First is a search for more effective and efficient tools. The second is a search for even safer tools in terms of health and the environment. And the third is the need to stay ahead of the tendency of pests to develop resistance to these tools. The reason that the discovery process for new pest control agents is like looking for a needle in a haystack is that we have those very high three standards for what qualifies as a viable new product. It's hard to find something that is as novel, safe, and effective as we would like, and it takes a lot of time and money to do the prospecting to find it. Conservatively, the discovery, development, and regulatory process for a new pesticide based on synthetic chemistry takes more than 11 years and an investment over $300 million. 
Understandably, there are only a few companies around the world with those kinds of resources, and they can only justify the spending to search and develop for these new products if they can be used on some major global crop. So let's start with the efficiency and effectiveness standard. The oldest products that humans used for pest control tended to be based on naturally occurring minerals, things containing sulfur, copper, tin, zinc, arsenic, or even mercury. The way a product controls a pest is called its mode of action. And the mode of action for these old mineral products was usually described as multi-site, meaning it's sort of a brute force, non-specific activity usually requiring quite a bit of material in the range of several pounds for every treated acre. Today, mostly sulfur and copper products remain as part of the farming toolbox because we have long since stopped using things like arsenic, tin, or mercury. The sulfur and copper products tend to be relatively cheap, but they require frequent applications at rates that are high by modern standards. Now, they can qualify for organic because they are natural, but there generally are more effective and safer options for the control of most pests. Now, one key attribute of the needles being sought today is a selective mode of action, the ideal being a product that is specifically toxic or otherwise effective against the pest, but not to us or other non-targets. A familiar example of selective toxicity is chocolate, something obviously safe and delicious for us, but something that is toxic to dogs. For pest control agents, the main way they can be selective is that they interfere with the function of some specific enzyme or other cellular process that's important to the pest but doesn't even exist in humans. This kind of specific mode of action can even result in a product that is toxic to certain insect pests but not to other beneficial insects. A classic example of this would be insecticides based on the natural soil-dwelling bacterium Bacillus thuringiensis or Bt. In that case, a protein made by the bacterium gets partially digested and then very specifically binds to the gut lining of certain insects, rendering them unable to continue eating so that they eventually die. For instance, the strains of Bt that are effective against caterpillars don't have any effect on beetles or bees or other kinds of insects. Now, these Bt bacteria have been widely applied for pest control for decades, and the genes for their protein toxins are what have been placed in various insect-resistant, genetically modified, or biotech crops. Selectivity is one of the special features people look for in a new pest control agent. But that feature comes with one downside. It's a lot easier for a pest to become resistant to something that inhibits a specific enzyme than it is to become resistant to those old, non-specific, multi-site products. Remember that scene in the movie Princess Bride? when Wesley is having a battle of wits with the Sicilian in which supposedly one glass of wine is okay and the other has the poison Iocane powder. It turns out that Wesley put the powder in both glasses, but afterward he explains to the soon-to-die Sicilian that he has spent the last few years building up a tolerance to Iocane powder, and so he could actually drink it safely. Well, pests also tend to build up resistance to even our most effective pest control products, but it's not a slow shift like Wesley described for Iocane powder. Instead, within any large population of pests, there can be some with a slight genetic difference that renders them resistant to that specific kind of pest control agent. And if the same mode of action agent is supplied over and over again, 
it ends up selecting for the resistance individuals in the pest population, and once they get established, the product no longer works. Now, this risk is something taken very seriously by the farming community and its supporting technology companies. There are international working groups called resistance action committees dedicated to helping farmers become aware of the modes of action of their various pest control options so they can alternate or mix them as a way to greatly slow the, their selection for resistant pests. For insecticides and miticides, there are currently 28 distinct selective modes of action. For fungicides, there are more than 50, and for herbicides, around 22. Even so, it's always desirable to find another needle in the haystack of a new mode of action. Sometimes this can be found for a new synthetic chemical, natural product, or biological agent. As I mentioned earlier, one of the three key challenges in the pest control needle hunt is to find safe options from the perspective of human health. There are some old insecticides that were only safe for humans based on the principle of toxicology that's been known since the days of the ancient Greeks, the dose makes the poison. The old category of insecticides called organophosphates and carbamates had a mode of action of inhibiting a key enzyme in the animal nervous system called cholinesterase. Well, both we and insects have that enzyme. But it only takes a very small amount of the chemical to kill the bug, and that dose is something that humans can tolerate. As more and more new modes of action have been discovered over the past half century, the use of these old cholinesterase-inhibiting insecticides has dropped dramatically. Now, for some pests of some crops, these old products are still an element of the toolbox that needs to be pulled out under special circumstances. But with ongoing discovery of new tools, those exceptions are getting more and more unusual. Still, the largest cost of developing a new pest control agent is doing the health and environmental testing that's required by the EPA before it will allow any new pesticide to be used. There are literally hundreds of rigorous tests used to check for any form of short or long-term toxicity by different routes of exposure. Some required toxicity studies are quick and not too expensive, but others take years and cost tens of millions of dollars. The normal strategy is to do the quick and less expensive studies and only move on to the high-priced ones if all the easy tests look clean. The environmental fate of the product also has to be characterized to make sure it won't bioaccumulate like the old insecticide DDT and that it will break down into harmless byproducts in a timely fashion. For every crop where a new product is to be used, the manufacturer has to show what happens in the plants and when so that rules can be written to ensure the safety of those who enter the fields and how much time is needed between the use and the harvest to build in a safe margin for those of us who consume the crop. The way it works is that the company wishing to commercialize the new product pays for the testing, but the work has to be done in a way that can be audited by the government regulators. Typically, this is done in third-party testing labs, and those labs have a strong incentive to meet the government's exacting standards so they can continue to do business. Also, think about it. No company that hopes to sell a product wants the risk of it turning out to be health issues down the line. And that's driven both by ethics and economic self-protection. The one way that public funds come into the process is through a program at the USDA called IR4. For minor crops, there can be times when the potential product sales could never justify the cost of the crop-specific tests required so that it could be added to the EPA label. 
So this government program called IR4 can kind of step in to fill that gap, pay for the needed testing so that farmers of even a niche crop can get the benefits of the latest pest control options. Now, the EPA has some product registration tracks that are less expensive. If the chemical in question is something that is already present as a natural chemical in the food supply, it can qualify as a reduced risk material and not require some of the most expensive and long-term tests, as long as it comes up clean in the short-term toxicity testing. Most live biological control organisms can also go through a quicker and less expensive approval process. As you can imagine, all the companies that are out there prospecting for new pest control solutions are looking at all the options, including new synthetic chemicals, natural products, and living biologicals. And farmers are well served by this diverse strategy, as are the other non-agricultural pest control sectors from mosquito control to gardens to pets. In my 40-plus years of association with the pest control industry, I've seen remarkable progress on that threefold goal of finding needles in the haystack that are more effective, safer, and able to stay a step ahead of pest resistance. This discovery process is certainly not easy or cheap, but that sort of pain is necessary. As the iocane-resistant character Wesley said, life is pain, Highness, and anyone who tells you differently is selling something. You can follow me on Twitter at GrapeDoc, at G-R-A-P-E-D-O-C, and visit my blog at www.popagriculture.com.